Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. There is no moral issue. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Hey there, welcome back. Another episode of Yolitics here. I'm excited about this episode. That voice, I am too. You, yeah, the voice you just heard there. Uh, history nerds like myself might know that voice. That's one of the most famous Texans uh, in the history of Texas, Lyndon mm-hmm. Baines Johnson, former president of the United States. Yeah, I was going to say, if you even live in Texas, even if you're not a native Texan, you should just know who that is just by the sound. He had a very distinctive uh, voice, a very distinctive style. And uh, today we get to take kind of a trip back in time. But the interesting thing is, Jason, is that it really feels like we're not going anywhere. A lot of the things that were going on in the 60s, when you, you know, extrapolate all of them out and you pull them forward, it's kind of a lot of the same stuff that we're struggling with today. We've come full circle, and that uh, that requires a, a drink here, a cold it one. It does. What are you popping what, the top on, man? Uh, I am having one from the Deep Ellum Brewing Company, and I picked this uh, because it looks, you know, it looks kind of 1960s, don't you think, the can? Uh, and it's called Manic Confidence, and I can't think of a better That's, word wow. in big, bold print than confidence when we're talking about uh, LBJ, because uh, he was one of these larger-than-life figures who didn't just you know talk the talk. He walked the walk. He got a lot done in his time. That's a pretty good one, man. I, I thought I was going to bag on you for a deep element. I'm like, we're talking about Austin LBJ, but the title of the beer is pretty good. Um, but, I brought you, but I brought it home for you there. Yeah, that, that, that's pretty good, man. You, you, you did come around with that one. I'm having a uh, an Icy Boys. Okay. Zilker Brewing Company. I think this is, uh, this. Well, I think, I know this is in Austin because I bought it when I was coming through Austin. Well, it's got to be. I mean, Zilker Park. I mean, if, it, if Park, it's made yeah. somewhere else, that would be a real tragedy. And it, it's a good beer. This is the last one I have left, but uh, I just now read it when I was trying to find out to make sure it was it was made there. Uh, and you probably know this. You lived in Austin for a while, but Icy Boys yeah. is the ultimate pairing, it says on the side here, with Austin's own Spicy Boys Fried Chicken. But mm. if you just want a solid beer, this is your beer. I've never had Spicy Boys Fried Chicken, but I'm all about trying it. I haven't had Spicy Boys Fried Chicken either, and that tells me right there that we are due for a road trip. No doubt, man. I'm, I'm all up for that. But let, let's go ahead and, and, and get down there. We have, as our guest today, uh, probably the foremost historian on yeah. President Lyndon Baines Johnson, and it's Mark Updegrove. He's the former uh, director of the LBJ Museum and Library in Austin, which just reopened. And he's also currently the president of the LBJ Foundation. So, Mark, the the Voting Rights Act was signed into law 56 years ago next month. Is LBJ's legacy on this issue, is is that being undone right now by Republicans? Without question, Jason. I think what uh, President Johnson, when he implored 
lawmakers to support the Voting Rights Act of 1965 said, it is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. That, that, he thought that of that as fundamentally un-American. If you were not allowing registered voters to, ro- to vote to free and unfettered, you were denying them their most basic right as an American citizen. And that which was true 56 years ago is just as true today. What was true in 65 is true in 2021. Um, we are seeing systemic voting su- suppression throughout the country, just as we did in 1965. Uh, and it's uh, it's no less un-American. So the answer is uh, categorically yes. Let me ask you about that, though. Re- Republicans would say, hey, hey, you know, we're not denying anybody the right to vote. We're just trying to set up, you know, rules and regulations and kind of tighten it up so it's not so loose. What do you say to that? Well, I think if you read between the lines, it's because they are they are afraid they're not going to win in a free, fair election. And so what they're doing is they're they're changing the rules. They're 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 trying to deny those who might vote against them the chance to do so so that they can win at the polls. I think that what the Republicans would do, what would be smart to do, was to build a big, bigger tent, uh, create a platform that engenders the support of more of the electorate. That's the way to win if you're a Republican, not to limit the the, the, the legitimate voters, uh, their, their right to cast their ballot. Mark, let's go back 56 years, paint the picture of the time in 1965. Why was the Voting Rights Act needed at the time? What did it do? Give us a, a Cliff Notes version here. You bet. I, and and it's, it's really part of the larger civil rights movement of the, of the 1960s at a time when there's systemic racial inequity through, throughout the country. Uh, and so when President Johnson took office in 1964, he passed the Voting Rights Act. It had been on, on President Kennedy's legislative agenda. He didn't really have much legislative muster or will to pass it when LBJ t- took office upon the assassination of, of John F. Kennedy, he pushed it through a very reluctant Congress in President Kennedy's name, saying, "This is you owe this to your slain president. This is what he would have wanted. But he stripped out a very <clears throat> potent voting rights component from that legislation. That's not because Lyndon Johnson was opposed to it. It was simply because he knew it wouldn't pass if it had that voting rights uh, uh, plank in it. He looked at civil rights incrementally. So th- he thought, let's break the back of Jim Crow first, and then we'll look on to voting rights and find an opportunity to pass that. So in 1965, he's looking for a chance to again, uh, to get, to again get these, these reluctant lawmakers to pass something that was enormously controversial. And he had that opportunity by exploiting the, the tragedy of Selma, bloody, what is called Bloody Sunday, that thwarted uh, march from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, led by John Lewis, uh, which was broadcast on, on televisions across the nation. Uh, that, that gave Lyndon Johnson the opportunity to press uh, lawmakers and Americans on the issue of voting rights. And subsequent to that, using that tragedy, letting no, no tragedy go wasted. Uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, was able to to get the uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 passed. It seems like we're we're dealing with a lot of these same societal issues and and voting rights issues uh, all these years later now. And uh, what's the way forward here? What do you see as the way forward? You know, progressivism in America is always one one leap forward and a few steps back before you leap forward again. And 
And we saw an enormous leap forward 56 years ago on August 6, 1965, when Lyndon Johnson signed that landmark law um, allowing for greater voting rights in this country. But we've seen a few setbacks since, and you just enumerated them a moment ago. That is natural. And at these times, it allows us to reflect as a nation as to what is important to us. And again, to my mind, there is nothing more fundamentally American than the uh, giving one, a, a citizen of our nation, the ability to, to, to vote. Mark, uh, the, the Voting Rights Act is a, a big, comprehensive piece of legislation. And I think a lot of people hear it and they kind of think that they're familiar with it. But it does so many things. And one of the things that it does is it makes it made nine states uh, in particular get preclearance before they could change their voting laws. And of course, Texas was one of those states. Uh, the law suffered a big setback in 2013 at the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court threw that whole map into question as to which states should have to get preclearance from the Justice Department. Uh, and then uh, another Supreme Court ruling came down uh, just a few days ago uh, that a lot of people say gutted uh, another part of the Voting Rights Act. It seems like in 2013, when the Supreme Court took action, we heard a lot about this. It was there was a lot of fervor. There was a lot of discussion about what was happening. It seems like this latest case, which dealt with a couple of Arizona laws, didn't really get as much coverage. And I think people just kind of assumed oh, that's an Arizona issue. Can you talk about how significant it is what happened earlier this month? Yeah, it's, it's significant because it creates a, a precedent, right, for other states, Um and and the I think there is a a large focus on voting suppression generally, but not specifically as it relates to certain states. Um, you know, let, let, let's face it: this would not be happening. We would not be happening. We would not be having this discussion rather if it weren't for the big lie that was propagated by Donald Trump that he did not win the election of 2020. Now that now bear in mind this is. This has been part of Donald Trump's playbook forever. I mean, he said that when he didn't get a, a, a nomi, an Emmy nomination from the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, for The Apprentice, he was saying that the it was rigged. Uh, when he lost the Iowa caucus to Ted Cruz back in 2016, he said it was rigged. Right. So what is he going to say when he loses the election of 2020, which was expected based on the, the polling data that we saw? Well, it falls back to that same line. It was rigged. And that's caused this whole massive reevaluation of our voting system because of one man. This is utterly ridiculous. And um, we, we need to understand that America is not about what suits Donald Trump. America is, what's, is about what suits America. And that is rooted in the basic principles that we have as a nation. Mark, let's talk about uh, H.R. 4, House Resolution 4 right now in, in Congress. It's the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Um, it, it would restore parts of the uh, 1965 Voting Rights Act. But as Jason mentioned a moment ago in 2013, there was a Supreme Court decision saying it was obsolete. This similar bill uh, passed in Congress, uh, what, in 2019, the John Lewis Voting mm -hmm. Rights Act. It passed in the House, but not the Senate, because the Senate was Republican at the time. But what do you expect to happen now, now that Joe Manchin is on board, but Joe Manchin's saying that we don't, uh, we, we shouldn't kill the filibuster. So it, it's not going to pass without the filibuster, is it? It, it looks like it's not going to pass with the filibuster. And there's, there's a lot of misconceptions about what the filibuster is. People think of, uh, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, the Jimmy Stewart 
right. uh, movie years ago and him talking on the Senate floor forever and ever and ever to, to prevent a bill from being passed. And that's not exactly what a filibuster is. It's a whole lot easier to mount a filibuster in the Senate than that. Uh, it's just a tactic to, to stall voting rights. It doesn't necessitate any great rhetorical <laughs> effort on the part of either party. Uh, and the fact is, you're absolutely righteous. This is not going to pass without um, uh, without the filibuster being stripped away. That's, that has been a very effective tool, not just this go around, but in, in, in the history of the filibuster to prevent civil rights related acts from being passed, mm -hmm. right? President Johnson had to defeat the filibuster in order to get the civil rights of 1964 passed. Without that, there was no way of making it happen. And he managed a way around that. I, I think we all know that the filibuster is an anachronistic uh, tactic that we should strip away. And, um, and that's just simply not something that's happened because right now it's in the interest of Republicans to keep it in place. All that being said, then, what do you tell people who are kind of throwing their hands in the air right now? They're seeing that the Civil Rights Act is being undermined uh, in the Supreme Court at this point. They see uh, legislatures across the country that are passing new voting restrictions. And, uh, you, know, do, are, you know, some people might feel like just giving up there. I would imagine that people ask you in your position, what can I do? What do I do? What do you tell them? Social movements make a difference. Lawmakers rel very rarely lead; they often follow. They they look to their constituents for the for the the way to go. I mean, if if Donald Trump weren't so strong among Republicans, I don't think that um, most Republican lawmakers would support what Donald Trump stands for. He is enormously popular right now, and make no mistake about it, m most Republicans don't agree with Donald Trump ideologically for whatever Donald Trump stands for. He seems relatively capricious on that, on that score. There's not a lot that, that Donald Trump um, stands for that, that is really clear to me. Right now, he feels like he was robbed of the 2020 election. It's a big blow to his ego to concede that the electorate voted for Joe Biden and not him. And so he's propagated this lie that Republicans are supporting because Donald Trump has engendered the support of Republicans in their district who keep them in office. Hmm. So they're doing this because it's it's the it's a political expedient. But there's no no if there was an effort mounted to 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 dissuade those Republican voters from towing the line on whatever Donald Trump said, there's no doubt in my mind that lawmakers would go the way of their electorate. They're not they don't they're not doing this because they believe deeply in their heart that there's a need for voting reform. The civil rights movement of the 1960s, the women's rights movements of the, of the 1970s were effective because they changed the minds of of uh, members of the electorate. They changed the mind of minds of voters. And consequently, lawmakers voted to represent their constituents. So I think social movements make an enormous difference. You saw that with the Me Too movement as well. Look how much has changed as a consequence of Me Too just a few years ago. Without that movement, there's no doubt that, that there would likely have not been the movement that we've seen on uh, issues relating to women in this country. Mark, what happens, though, if the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act does not pass? In this Congress, when when the uh, Democrats are in charge of the House and the Senate and the White House, 
isn't that just a green light for for states like Texas to make any changes they want without any federal oversight? That, that that's probably right, and that's the danger here. Um, what what happens in uh, in Washington has a, a resounding effect on the rest of the country, but I think that's right. We can't allow this to go unchecked. Again, I, I can't emphasize enough. There's nothing more fundamentally un-American than than preventing people from voting free and unfettered if they're a registered voter in, in this nation. They'll justify it. But to my mind, um, it is, it is as, as President Johnson said, wrong, not just wrong, but deadly wrong. And as this episode airs just down the street from you in the Texas Capitol, Republicans are taking up this issue in the special session. They couldn't get it through in the regular session, but they are pushing uh, voting restrictions once again. And I'm just curious uh, from your mind. I mean, you were the director of the LBJ Presidential Library for a number of years before you became the president and CEO of the LBJ Foundation. You have been in his head for many years. If he were still alive today, what do you think LBJ would say? What would he do? Well, I think we know what he would say because he said it in that in that famous speech. Perhaps uh, LBJ reached his rhetorical heights with that um, plea he made to Congress and the nation around voting rights in 1965. I don't think it ever got better than that for Lyndon Johnson in terms of his rhetorical splendor. Uh, that's, of course, the speech where he invoked the anthem of the civil rights movement by saying, we shall overcome. Their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. And that was a, a bomb to the soldiers of the civil rights movement like Martin Luther King, who cried when he heard Lyndon Johnson utter that phrase. So I think we know what he would say. I think what he would do, that's different. I think he was a master legislator and tactician. And he would try to tr figure out a way around this, just as he did when he was trying to defeat his fellow Democrats, mind, mm -hmm. who were mounting a filibuster against the, the, or to prevent the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 from passing. I think he would look at the legislators. Uh, he would figure out tactics to, to get them to, to move away from voting rights restrictions in Texas and, and in, in Washington. He'd figure out the political maneuvering that would, uh, that would prevent this from occurring. But what that is specifically, I can't tell you. Hmm. He'd call in favors, wouldn't he? I, I love some of the old uh, recordings of his. And, and one, when he called, uh, I think he called Truman to go to a, a state funeral somewhere overseas. <laughs> I know you know this one, but he's like, you know, I, I don't want to hear it, Harry. I, I need you to go. I need you to get on the plane and just go over there. I, I don't want to hear it. I just need to knock this out. Something like That's that. That's exactly just, right. You yeah, know, it was. Go ahead. This I mean, was a guy who was very persuasive. There's no question. Yeah. And I'll tell you something. And, and, and to that end, as it relates to voting rights, you can hear him as he's talking to Republican and Democratic lawmakers around voting rights and civil rights. You'll see, I don't want this to be a Republican bill. I don't want this to be a Democratic bill. I want this to be an American bill. And that's how he swung the support of, of Republicans. It's, it's so worth noting, guys, 
that neither the, the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 nor the Voting Rights Act of 1965 would have passed if not for the support of Northern Republicans. LBJ knows this. And to your point, Jason, what he talks to Everett Dirksen, who is the all-important minority leader of the Republican Party in the Senate. And he says, you know, and as he's talking uh, about the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, he says, Everett Dirksen was from Illinois. He said, you know, I, I was at the Illinois State Fair, Ev. I was up there at the Illinois. And I, I'm going to tell you something. If you support this bill, 100 years from now, School kids in Illinois are only going to know two names, Abraham Lincoln and Everett Dirksen. <laughs> he was appealing to his ego. He was trying to get him on the right side of history. And when LBJ signed the Civil Rights Act on July 2nd, 1964, he signed it with 72 pens. Hmm. And that first pen he gave to Everett Dirksen. That's a mm. reflection of the bipartisan support that was needed to 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 pass those bills. He he was Marco, a salesman. He was a salesman. <laughs> Mark, a, a lot of people, uh, or you know, rightfully so, think that the the political times we are living in are, are are rough, are turbulent. They wonder about the future of our country. But of course, the 1960s, when all this was going on, was just as bad. Some would say even worse. Can, can you compare the two? You know, yeah, you can. Um, there, look, there's always going to be division and strife and, and uh, you know, partisanship. And that, that's, that's just the nature of who we are as a people. That's uh, the, the whole notion of democracy is that we can believe what we want. So we're inherently divided in many respects. I think that this, I guess the big difference that I have seen in the past several years is that all this or much of this is, is a consequence of a president who simply was unable to put the needs of the office of the presidency and, and by extension, the needs of the American people above his own. That's something that I, I, I can't find from another president throughout American history. They all seemed in some ways they might have succeeded or they might have failed, but all of them seemed to, to, to stretch themselves, to extend themselves to fit the, 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 the office that they held, the majesty of that office. Donald Trump was any, unable to do that. Uh, it was just a character deficit in Donald Trump that he was simply unconstitutionally unconsti- ill-equipped to put anything above himself. And again, that resulted in the big lie of 2020, which is the reason that voting rights are under siege currently. Well, a lot of people back in the 60s, Mark, might have assumed that, you know, we wouldn't be able to get that legislation through at that time. But it happened. Uh, How do you feel right now? Do you feel optimistic about this? Do you feel pessimistic about this? Where are you? You know, I would like to be optimistic because I see in America that we it's if you look at the the trajectory of of um, progressivism in this country, it looks a little like the Dow Jones uh, index over time. It goes up. But it waxes and wanes as it sort of ascends over time. And we're in a sort of a a bearish uh, market as far as American democracy goes right now. But we will ascend. We will continue to grow and get better. That's just the nature of things. But it's hard to see how voting rights will pass. I'm not in Washington. I'm not in those discussions. I don't know what machinations are, are, are going on behind the scenes. But I do know that uh, if the trends of American history 
uh, continue to ring true, ultimately democracy will prevail. And actually, that's the one lesson to draw from what happened on January 6th. As bad as that was, as horrible as it was to see the citadel of American democracy under siege by insurrection, uh, 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 insurrectionists, uh, ultimately, lawmakers went back in the chamber and they voted to certify the election from November, that those results, they upheld those results. Democracy ultimately ruled the day. Um, when, when, when Gerald Ford took office in the wake of um, the, uh, the Watergate scandal and the resignation of Richard Nixon, the first president in American history to resign, he made a speech to the American people. And as you may recall, he said, our long national nightmare is over. We are a nation of men and not laws. Here the people rule. And that's what we saw earlier this year. We saw that we are a nation of laws and not men. And ultimately, the people spoke and they ruled. And those election results were certified. So democracy did prevail, but we must guard against this voting suppression, which limits us as a nation and holds us back. The political map, of course, was very different in 1965, too, Mark, going back uh, a few years on this. And you mentioned uh, how President Johnson saw the nation above all else, above himself and his role as a president, etc. And and one thing he did that a lot of people might not realize is that he essentially, uh, he acknowledged, I don't know what the quote is, I'm sure you know, but he acknowledged when he signed either was the Civil Rights Act or Voting Rights Act, by signing this, I'm signing over the South to Republicans for who knows how long, something like that. It's an astounding um, story. Uh, President yeah, Johnson I, it was his creature Tell, tell of us his story. He had spent practically his whole adult life toward the acquisition and exercise of power. And this great triumph of getting the Civil Rights Act passed should have been the high note of his presidency. But he was somewhat desolate. He, he, was, he was somewhat defeated that night after it had been signed. And Bill Moyers asked him why he wasn't more jubilant. And he said, because I think I just signed away the Republican Party in the South for my lifetime and yours. Bill Moyers is now in his middle 80s. And as we can see, President Johnson was prescient. Uh, the, the Republican Party is, is dominant as a result of that, uh, that very consequential action and very courageous action on behalf of Lyndon Johnson in 1964. It's still Republican to this day. So he knew that it was incredibly noble, but he also saw the wisdom in that decision. He saw that he would be on history's side. Somebody counseled him, one of his aides counseled him against uh, fighting for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. He said, look, earn the presidency in your own right and then fight for the Civil Rights Act. And LBJ looked at him after this sort of long and uncomfortable silence and said, what the hell is the presidency for? He knew he had an opportunity, particularly exploiting the death of John F. Kennedy to get it passed, and he was not going to squander that. Again, like the Voting Rights Act, he let no good crisis go to waste. Hmm. Uh, and he saw the, the, the majesty of the presidency at that moment, allowing him to, to get the civil rights passed. No one was able to do that, and, and no one might have been able to do that but for Lyndon Johnson in that, uh, in that tragic moment. It's like the time chose chose the man there. Uh, do you think, I mean, he was a political animal just as much as anyone else, though. Do you think that he had doubts about doing this? I mean, that was a big step. No, I don't think he did. Um, again, I thought I think he, Lyndon Johnson's most formative experience 
was in teaching um, between his junior and senior school. He went to what is now Texas State University uh, down the street in, in San Marcos. Uh, and in order to, to get the money to finish his senior year, he took a year off and he taught Mexican-American school kids in Catula, Texas. And he saw through their eyes what bigotry and, and racial un, un, injustice looked like. And he was, he was determined to do something about it. And while um, in order to ascend the ranks in Texas, you had to toe the line on segregation, when he had the power of the presidency and he was not just beholden to the voters of Texas and had a chance to do something about it, I, I think he sees that opportunity. If it cost him the election of 1964, so be it. Again, and that's a remarkable thing coming as it does from Lyndon Johnson, who, who was such a creature of, of power and devoted his life to it. But that was the statement that I think meant the most to him in his political career, the things that he did to um, to to, to uh, avail justice to those who had been denied it before. My first job after college was as a teacher in Cotula, Texas, in a small Mexican American school. Few of them could speak English, and I couldn't speak much Spanish. My students were poor and they often came to class without breakfast, hungry. And they knew, even in their youth, the pain of prejudice. They never seemed to know why people disliked them, but they knew it was so, because I saw it in their eyes. I often walked home late in the afternoon after the classes were finished, wishing there was more that I could do. But all I knew was to teach them the little that I knew, hoping that it might help them against the hardships that lay ahead. And somehow you never forget what poverty and hatred can do when you see its scars on the hopeful face of a young child. I never thought then, in 1928, that I would be standing here in 1965. It never even occurred to me in my fondest dreams that I might have the chance to help the sons and daughters of those students and to help people like them all over this country. But now I do have that chance. And I'll let you in on a secret. I mean to use it. So con considering that, Mark, I mean, it was obviously a bold decision. He says he intends to use it. He did use it. But, you know, politically, that was seen as betrayal by these Southern Democrats who ended up going to the Republican Party, who make up the, the you know, South's powerhouse in the South. That's that's exactly right. And and um, among them uh, was a towering figure named Richard Russell, who was the a, a Democratic senator from uh, from Georgia who had helped Lyndon Johnson climb the ranks in the Senate. He was the mm -hmm. minority whip, then the majority leader, a minority leader and then majority leader within uh, eight years. I mean, it was a remarkable ascent through the ranks in the Senate and probably became the most powerful 
Senate majority leader in, in Senate history, certainly in the 20th century, but, but probably in history. Hmm. Uh, but he, he knows he has to run over uh, Richard Russell in order to get the Civil Rights Act passed. And, and out of respect for him, because it's, it's Russell who's mounting the filibuster, to go back to our earlier conversation. Uh, and, and out of respect for him, he, he brings uh, Russell into the Oval Office. He says, Dick, I'm, I'm going to have to run over you on this bill. I love you and I owe you, but we're going to get the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed. Uh, but I'm warning you, in order to do it, I'm going to have to run over you. And Russell says, Mr. President, I, I don't doubt that you can do that. I don't think John F. Kennedy could have done that, but I think you can. But I warn you, if you do, you risk losing the party in the South and you risk losing the the, the election uh, later on this year. And LBJ considers that and replies, Dick, if that is the price for this bill, I will gladly pay it. Wow. That it is a man on a mission. That, exactly. That's a man on a mission. And it goes back to that formative experience in many respects that he had in Couture, which he just spoke about a moment ago. He mm-hmm. has the power of the presidency and he, he means to use it. Mark, is it going to take somebody or somebody's uh, willing to commit that kind of political suicide this time around to, to, to bring about change and to protect voting rights, you think? You know, you see Joe Biden's uh, very bullish on, on this uh, law. My guess is that he will be willing to, to accept some compromises, but he's going to make damn sure, just as Lyndon Johnson did, that it is potent that it's meaningful. There was, there was a lot of civil rights passed before the Civil Rights of Act of 1964 that was largely impotent, but, it's, but for its symbolism, that the Civil Rights Act of 1967, or 57 rather, the, the Civil Rights Act of 1960, both were important because they were symbolic. It was the first voting uh, civil rights legislation since uh, Reconstruction, but it didn't mean anything. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was determined to, to have it mean something. And I think Joe Biden is very similar to Lyndon Johnson in a lot of respect. This is a guy who spent a long time under the Capitol Dome. He understands the legislative process. He understands the power of the presidency, having worked with so many presidents before him. My guess is that, that he is going to not accept any voting rights bill that's not potent, that doesn't mean something. We don't need symbolism now. We need something to prevent voting suppression. And that goes to my my last point here, Mark, and we'll let you run. But the way that Lyndon Johnson spoke to people, former President Truman, uh, Senator Russell, in this case here that you're talking about, he he didn't rely on aides or assistance to negotiate things. He he negotiated face to face or or phone to phone uh, with with the key players, and that is because he came up through the the House and Senate, right? That's exactly right. As did Joe Biden. Listen. Nobody, and this is startling to think about, nobody had less political experience uh, in earning the pre- or military experience in earning the presidency than, uh, than, than, than Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is, by, is followed by uh, a successor who is, has more political experience than anyone in the history of the presidency. They, they, are, they could not be more different uh, experientially. But but Lyndon Johnson had those relationships in in Congress, and Joe Biden has those relations in Congress. I think he saw Barack Obama's inability to get much done legislatively later on in his term because he didn't have those relationships. Biden does. He understands the importance of them. So there's no doubt in my mind, Jason, that, that he will be on the phone, to your point, 
He will be inviting them to dinners. He will be uh, imploring them to support uh, not only the Voting Rights Act, but uh, the other reforms of his administration to help, I think, uh, his mission in turning America around at a very um, pivotal point in our history. Mark, we know that uh, you're a busy man and we're about to let you go here, but we would be remiss if we didn't point out that the building where you are joining us from right now, as of July 14th, is reopened uh, to the public on a limited basis. It's been a while for you know people who are uh, wanting to check out some presidential history, so we should put that out there for folks. And also, just for people who don't know, what is the LBJ Foundation? What do you all do? All presidential live, it's a fair question. And we look forward to welcoming the public back into our building after uh, almost a year and a half of our doors being closed. But uh, presidential libraries are uh, all public-private partnerships. The public side of that is the National Archives, which run the, the libraries, of which there is uh, one for every president from Herbert Hoover through Barack Obama. Uh, we have yet to know what the Donald Trump library might look like. But the, the private part of that are presidential foundations, which to cooperate these these uh, facilities with the National Archives. The, the, the National Archives gives you the basic stuff, keeps the lights on, and their processes the, the, the records, which is fundamentally what presidential libraries are about. They're a repository of the presidential records. But the, uh, the, the presidential foundations allow there to be wonderful exhibits and additional personnel and gift shops and uh, the other things, programmatic elements that make the presidential libraries what they are. I was coming through Austin the other day, Mark, and I wanted to stop and I looked up and I saw it was temporarily closed. Um, so I'm glad to see you guys uh, have reopened or the library has uh, reopened. But hey, this has been super informative uh, to me. and I really appreciate your time and expertise and, and kind of, uh, you know, showing and showing us how this is all, you know, shaped by time and how it's not just, uh, you know, an odd time we are living through right now. This is something the country's experienced before about 56 years ago. Yeah, thanks for taking us back in time. It feels a lot like what we're experiencing right now, too. It's amazing yeah. how how much how so much changes and and so much stays the same. History doesn't uh, uh, doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it certainly does uh, certainly does rhyme. So, being the the history nerd that I am, Jason, I, I have. I sat up a few years ago, late at night, and I went down the rabbit hole on Google, and I started listening to some LBJ tapes. Wow. And you okay. think you know a president or a public official when they're, you know, in the news headlines and quoted and stuff like that. But the LBJ tapes, you know, before Nixon got caught, uh, you know, er erasing things off the uh, White House recording system, uh, President Johnson had a recording system, too. And the way he talked to people, his oh. salty Texas salty. language. I mean, salty, salty to say the least. He yeah. was he was rough and tumble and would not back down from a fight and just the way he talked to people just cracked me up. Persuasive is what you said in the in the uh, conversation with Mark a moment ago. But man, it's it's fun to listen to is what I'm trying to say. If you're ever bored for a half hour, it, it's a rabbit hole that's worth digging into. 
Yeah, that guy could give an upbraiding to somebody <laughs> like few people probably in history have been able to do. And Jason, I think that that was a big key to his success. He was known as a guy, you know, who who made deals, who 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 did things in person, who had conversations and would, you know, slap you on the back and have you out to the ranch and that sort of thing. But he also knew when to pull out the stick, you know, put the carrot away and pull out the stick. And he knew how to use that stick, too. Uh, and what remarkable result uh, that came from that, yeah. because that was such a tumultuous time in history. I think that, you know, some of his presidency tends to get, um, you know, overlooked or compressed into a, a small box. Uh, but, you know, we were talking with Mark about this, you know, off the air uh, and, you know, he was telling us how he's sitting in this office looking at this box of pens that LBJ used to sign all of these huge landmark pieces of legislation, Medicare, Medicaid, Voting Rights Act, Clean Air Act. I mean, it just it goes on and on and on. And, you know, we were like, wow, that's an incredible uh, legacy. Those are some big things. Those are some big legislative pieces for four years. And he said, no, 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 that was from one year. Uh, I mean, this guy was getting things done. Whether you agree with his politics or not, uh, he got a lot done. He, he did. And, 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 you know, like we said a moment ago, he, he knew the Capitol inside and out. He, he had worked his way up through the House and in the Senate where he had his you know, longest career there. So he knew who to call. He knew the people who owed him favors. He knew where the skeletons were buried. That's why he could call in those favors and get things done. And it was 1965 you're talking about. When Medicaid and Medicare uh, passed, the Voting Rights Act was 1965, Head Start, uh, a, a number of these huge things that are still, you know, these, these institutions today uh, are, you know, are, are all because of one man in one year, one Texan in one year. And as we come up on the 60th uh, anniversary of his legacy several years from now, we will see, uh, is that landmark voting rights legislation preserved? Is it expanded? Or is it greatly, greatly reduced? It already has been greatly reduced. We will see if it uh, essentially gets erased uh, yeah. as we go forward with what we're seeing right now in the Texas Capitol and other capitals across the country, as well as in the Supreme Court and in Congress. Hope you enjoyed the context today. Uh, we really enjoyed talking to Mark and, and kind of uh, seeing that this has kind of all happened before in, in similar senses. But um, we appreciate you listening to this episode as always. And make sure you uh, subscribe to us if you haven't already. Subscribe to us so you get these downloads straight to your mobile device every Tuesday. In fact, here's the secret. Here's the secret. Oh, wait, we're, we, gonna, we're getting a secret now. Here's okay. a secret we What's don't tell secret? people. We, we tell everyone we, we release this at what, at midnight, overnight on Tuesday morning. Yeah. If you can't actually, sleep, we right. actually release this like at 10.05 p.m. every Monday night. Yes. So if you're one of these weird people who tends to sit up in bed and go down rabbit right. holes and listen to uh, <laughs> past president speeches and, and, and tapes, uh, there's the something else for yeah. you to add. Yeah, there's something else to you, for you to add to your playlist while you're sitting there in bed with insomnia. Y'all have a good one. Maybe we'll put you right to sleep. You don't yeah, know. It, it, it might. Who knows? Thanks so much for uh, listening. We'll see you again next week.